Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, the GigaCity company, a philanthropic community partner since 1922 and proud supporter of numerous community organizations. More information at smithville.com. And School of Public Health Bloomington, Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life publichealth.indiana.edu. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Claire McInerney, co-hosting today with Barbara Brozier. This election season was marked by stories of fake or misleading news being shared on social media. These websites often spread posts with viral titles to get more and get more ad revenue or to intentionally misinform groups of people. Because more and more people get their news from social media websites, there's now a push for greater media literacy. Today on Noon Edition, we're discussing how to know what news sources to trust and where to find accurate information about current events. Please stick around as we explore how fake news gets created and goes viral on social media. We're joined today by four guests who are well-versed in this topic. First, Giovanni Champaglia, who is a research scientist at the IU Network Science Institute. Jerry Linozga, president of the Indiana Coalition for Open Government. Susanna Evans-Comfort, an assistant professor at IU's Media School. And Filippo Menzer, who is a professor of informatics at IU. Welcome, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. So I think we'll start just kind of talking about what fake news is. Um, we have a list of headlines in front of us right now, and I'll read a few, and I think we'll see that they really could be real. Um, they hit on the topics, the people, the issues that are in the real news. Um, the first one is new study shows illegal immigrants to outnumber Americans two to one by 2025. That sentiment has been in the real news. Um, President-elect Trump. Ivanka Trump will move into the White House to fill Melania's vacancy. We also saw stories talking about whether Melania would, you know, move to Washington, D.C. And so these are things that we're talking about, but this isn't the Washington Post. This is ncscooper.com. I don't, you know. So who wants to start with defining what what fake news is and the, what these websites are? Um, I can start. I <laughs> okay, guess. go for it. Please, from my own perspective, that... Um, um, I think it comes mostly from what used to be called urban legends um, and and um, and rumor, basically, like uh, people trying to make sense of what's going on, and um, only that it has, like, especially uh, after this election, um, it has started taking a um, life of its own. Now we call it fake news, but pretty much is is the same idea about weaponized, so to speak. It's like. It comes packaged in, uh, in, in nice websites uh, that um, look more or less uh, as if they were new, um, interesting publications. And they, but in the end, they kind of play to, to the same ideas of like fears or interests or people just want to know more about things that are developing quickly. So, You touched on a really interesting point, mm -hmm. and that's that a lot of these websites look like they could be legitimate news websites. Yeah. And I think that's what that's what catches people a mm -hmm. little bit. What should they be looking for when <laughs> they're they're seeing these headlines? What can tip them off that maybe I should check the source on this and where I'm getting this information? 
I can speak to that a little bit. So that's a big problem. We've seen that studies show that when it comes to native advertising, which is basically advertising that's made to look like editorial output, most people cannot see the difference, even when it says advertisement at the top of the page. So most readers are not looking critically at what they read. And you might argue it's not on the reader to have to make that distinction. Um, I think our biggest challenge is that since most people are seeing headlines through social media, we also know that they usually don't click. They don't click on the headline, they only read the headline and they read the comments from their friends. Um, so you could argue that you should click. You could also argue that you should not click because the click <laughs> is the thing that the advertiser wants <laughs> and, the output and the outlet wants. So it's really hard to know how consumers can defend themselves aside from doing it the old fashioned way, which is not even that old fashioned, going to the homepage of the news <laughs> outlets that you look, prefer to read. And not only, uh, aside from the fact of whether people should click or not, there's the issue of whether they should reshare, <coughs> excuse me, yeah. reshare to their friends. So the the worst thing that they can do is just reshare after only looking at the headlines without actually even looking at the article itself or the source. Uh, because when our friends get something that is reshared from us, then um, they have more trust in it because they think that it's been endorsed by somebody that they trust or that they know. And this is how we become not only the victims, but also the perpetrators mm -hmm. in the spread of fake news. So how did we get here? What, what's the, the point of all of this fake news and why are people spending so much time to develop some of these websites? And money. I mean, you mentioned it used to be rumors, and so that's mm -hmm. always been around. Oh, mm -hmm. I heard that this is going to happen now that so and so is yeah. president. But or, now, is it we just have platforms when it comes to or the or or the tabloid uh, newspapers, right? Mm -hmm. they, they they will be you find them at near the the the, the stands and the and the supermarket. Um, I guess definitely there's a component about the the financial incentives and how these um, platforms like Facebook and Twitter. Um, I mean, their business model is to let uh, media producers uh, get something out of it and, and, and produce content that then can uh, be engaging for people on the platform. And so they're, they're just using more or less the same idea and it's um, efficient, it's optimized. Um, definitely then on top of that, one could argue the polarization of society, um, uh, the, the, the election cycle that kind of let people plan in advance in a certain sense. You know that the election are gonna be held now, um, in the U.S. in particular, like the electoral campaign is so long, so it, it, lets, it lets, from the perspective of like, um, I don't know, the kids in Macedonia uh, or, or whomever um, is producing these, is perfect. Like, they have uh, a calendar, they have all time to, to start crafting their, their, their outlets, so. Yeah, I, I would say that um, it helps to think that there are different reasons why people create fake news. So and there are lots of them, but one one group are, are people who are just trying to make money. So the examples that Giovanni was just mentioning a moment ago, it might be just somebody who just starts doing it for fun and then they, get, they see that they can make a lot of money from advertising and so they continue. And in fact, they craft their message towards the groups who are most likely to believe what they write and to be engaged by what they write. That way they can maximize their their income. But there are also other groups that may not do it for profit, they may do it for political reasons. And so we see plenty of uh, misinformation and misleading information, sometimes completely fabricated information put out by some hyper-partisan sites that are not necessarily just in the game to make money from ads, although that may be a component, but they, uh, they have an agenda. So to, towards the 
towards the group that is just in it for the profit, um, there are some things that we can do. And so the platforms now uh, are beginning to think about that. So for example, Google and Facebook have announced that they will um, not put advertising on fake news websites and that might cut one avenue of income. Although it must be said that there are many other ad networks that are probably ready to step in. But for the other group, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's not clear at all um, whether these, uh, cutting the financial incentives will have uh, an effect that's a question I have. Is it worth looking at the advertisers? I mean, are they the same people that are advertising on normal news websites and spending money? Not always. I, I was going to mention, <coughs> in response to your question earlier about things <coughs> that news consumers can do to sort of identify fake news sites, I think they're uh, sometimes pretty seductive, but oftentimes you can you can look at the architecture of a site and notice some things that... Um, should set off alarm bells in your head. The more flashing sorts of banner advertisements, for instance, the more outrageous sorts of uh, come-ons uh, that are urging you to click for the next great ingredient that's going to cause you to drop 10 pounds in a week. Um, you know, the, the worst-looking celebrities uh, that you can imagine. Um, those sorts of links that appear on a, on a, a news site, a, a purported news site, can sort of flag you to the potential that it's not necessarily a legitimate site. Other than that, I think, though, that people need to um, exercise some critical literacy. So I hope we can talk a lot about that. I did want to mention one other thing, though, which is um, that there's a long history of this. And we mentioned a little bit of this, the urban legends that Giovanni mentioned. But um, there's a long history of hoax news and fake news that goes back into the 19th <laughs> century, even to the uh, to the 17th century, the great moon hoax in 1835 um, that really are designed to, to capture audience attention. And uh, we feel like we're um, sort of inundated by it now because of the media environment that we're in. And to some extent, it is ubiquitous, but there are precedents. And, and I, I would also just point out that real news is very ubiquitous right now. You just have to look for it. Yes. You touched on this, but it does seem like we are just, our Facebook and Twitter feeds are being infiltrated mm -hmm. uh, much more with this fake news. What do you think that is? Is it just the nature of social media? Is it this election cycle? Or do they have better search engine optimization <laughs> tools than the real networks have? I don't think it's so much about better search engine optimization, mm -hmm. but they have good algorithms that let you see the things mm -hmm. that you are likely to be interested in. They leverage the information that we provide about our friends, about what we like and what we're interested in and what we believe. All that information is available through the things that we click on and the people that we friend. And that is very effective in terms of maximizing engagement, which is what a social media platform wants to do, because that's how they make their profit. And also, we, that's why we enjoy using the platform, because we see things from our friends and we see things that we think are interesting. And so... That makes it very easy for us to be predominantly exposed to uh, opinions and viewpoints that are aligned with our own belief, and that makes it harder for us to be critical. Um, so that's uh, one way. The, the, the other point, of course, of why is because now we spend more time on social media, and that is the major platform where many people get their news. And it is, it is one that can be manipulated by people who are crafting, creating believable news for a particular audience. And, uh, and so we easily become the victim because that platform can be uh, manipulated. 
Yeah, I would also add that um, we're seeing a, a, there's a twin phenomenon here too that's cultural where public trust in, in news media is at an all-time low and it has been in decline for some time now. So people are hungry for alternative news sources because for whatever reason they feel disenfranchised from what we might call legitimate or traditional mm -hmm. news sources. So there's a hunger out there and these, mm -hmm. whether they're fake news sites or highly partisan news sites are feeding into that hunger. So the mainstream news media or legitimate or traditional, whatever you want to call it, uh, is losing that audience for better or worse. Maybe they'll never meet that audience's needs. And there's someone else who's willing to step in and meet those needs. I'd like to talk more about that because Barbara and I are both reporters in mm -hmm. a traditional media newsroom. We work for public radio and television. And we, and I think anecdotally, we could talk about how media has changed in the last few years. But I'd like to hear from you, what types of things have been happening that make people trust less? The newspapers, the TV stations at their local level or national level? Well, there are a lot of answers to that question. <laughs> um, I'll just touch on one. I think there is a debate whether it's driven by decisions by uh, the news media itself or driven by culture. Um, we've seen a polarization in our political culture that predates the rise of Fox News and MSNBC. So the question is, did the polarization create the opportunity for partisan media, which then created um, you know, more audience fragmentation, which then created less of a social agreement about what we value, um, or was it the other way around? I tend to think it's a combination of both. We now, we had the partisan um, thing happening, partisan media took advantage of that, and now we have this sped up effect. Uh, so I think people don't know where to turn to, for, where to turn to for news anymore because there are so many options and they feel overwhelmed. Um, and those of us who are well-versed in traditional media, I think we get a little stuck in our ways and we don't recognize that for most Americans, subscribing to the New York Times or Indianapolis Star or whatever is 20 years ago and they're not going back to that. Mm -hmm. Especially if you can just go on Facebook and feel like you're informed. And another, I agree, those are very, very good points. I would say that another element that may also have played a role is technology. Uh, the internet and more recently social media have lowered the cost greatly to get into the market. If you want to make a newspaper, it could be a blog. And now it's so easy to set up a blog. And then that blog is, uh, as, as soon as it starts publishing something that is somewhere between opinions and news, even if those news are plagiarized or copied from another source or completely made up, now basically you have a platform. And um, a lot of that has been very good. You know, it has opened access for many people to produce information and to become sort of participants in the economy of, uh, or, uh, of, of information. But on the other side, it, this has also opened the door to those that can, you know, so manipulate, manipulate the market. Every time that there is new technology, there is abuse. Right, this happened with television. It happened with uh, telephone, and so um, technology is news. There's, uh, there are a lot of people who are now using more and more social media to access uh, news, but they are not familiar enough with the mechanisms by which they can be uh, manipulated or or tricked. So the technology also, I think, has played a role. So how does something go viral? I can think of specifically um, shortly after the election a picture <coughs> of. Um, the White House staff that uh, was taken out of context, given completely different story. It was tweeted out. They were looking kind of forlorn, and they said, oh, 
this is the staff, you know, while Trump and Obama were were meeting together. And, you know, it made them look very disappointed with that context, but it wasn't true. It was a photo from the previous day. And it was going around like crazy on Twitter. There were, unfortunately, reporters, you know, retweeting this photo. How does something like that go viral and how do you stop it? So <laughs> I, I, I would like to share some, something that has been shown by a research that provides a piece of the puzzle, not the entire answer to your good question. Uh, but it, uh, we have some models and simulations where we try to generate a, a social network where people uh, share news and then they reshare what they read. And um, it turns out that in a system that has the structure of the social networks that we have in our own social networks and social media. And on top of that, if there is the ingredient of finite attention, that is that each person uh, is only able to pay attention to a, to a small number of things at a time. So imagine, for example, that you look at your feed, your Twitter feed, or your, you, you don't read 1,000 things and then decide, okay, I'm going to share this one. Uh, what you really do is you look at things very, very quickly and you make a very fast decision about whether or not to share something. And um, so, so your limited attention uh, uh, puts a limit on, on how much you can cope and analyze and process the large amount of information that comes to you. So if you take these two components, the structure of the social network and our finite attention, then our models predict that some stuff is going to go viral exactly in the way that we observe in the empirical data, so the pattern of virality, uh, the likelihood that something is going to acquire a certain number of eyeballs or clicks or reshares. So those patterns are reproduced by our model, even though in our model, each piece of information is exactly the same as the other. They're just numbers. It, there's nothing that makes something better, more interesting, more trustworthy, uh, more, m more true than anything else. So in some sense, virality is inevitable because of the structure of our social networks and our finite attention, some stuff is going to go viral. So then it's not so much the question about why some stuff goes viral. Some stuff is going to go viral. The next question is, does the quality of information have anything to do with it? And, and yeah, so I, I, I have a little bit more to say because <laughs> yeah. we have some more experiments, but I just wanted to throw it there mm -hmm. to start with that um, mm -hmm. stuff is going to go viral. It's, it's basically inevitable mm -hmm. given, given the structure of our social networks. And I mean, uh, maybe one of you two could talk about this. The things that go viral are not Barbara Brozier's investigation into <laughs> how this policy is playing out in Indiana's, you know what I mean? Like this great journalism, it's these headlines that I read earlier, you know, I mean, is there something that news media people who are trained, who have gone to school, who are working in with editors and checks and balances, is there a way to like infiltrate that or is it just the clickable nature of the world that we live in now? Well, I think we're seeing uh, traditional news outlets trying to approximate that while still maintaining their credibility. I've observed the BuzzFeedification of Washington <laughs> Post headlines oh, over the last uh, yes. few years. Mm -hmm. yes. These are the top five things you need to know about Syria. Mm -hmm. um, they're, they're trying it um, while still trying to maintain fact-checking and, and credibility. Uh, will the market respond? I mean, the, the question always will be how much do uh, newspapers and traditional news outlets owe to the market versus showing news judgment. And uh, we hope they'll show news judgment, but the market might not reward that. And I would push back a, li a little bit against um, the 
the assertion in your question, which is, mm-hmm. you know, we, we, we feel, going back to a point I made <coughs> earlier, we feel inundated by this fake news um, and a- as if we're, we're helpless about um, it taking over the scene. So I think we can kind of inflate the problem to more than it is. Um, so I've seen various statistics about how many people get their news from social media. Uh, depending on whether it's Pew or someone else who's doing the study, but and depending on whether the definition is they get most of their news or some of their news from Facebook. But I've seen numbers from, you know, 44% to 65% of adults getting their news from Facebook. And not all of that is fake news. I mean, there is quite a lot of sharing of uh, news of traditional media outlets, uh, news media outlets. And one of the, the issues is I think that um, news consumers don't often distinguish and they don't often recognize that what they're sharing is something that comes from a mainstream news media outlet, although it really does. And in fact, this happens in, in uh, media circles as well. I listen to a wide range of radio. I listen occasionally to Rush Limbaugh, who's um, as big a critic of mainstream press and mm-hmm. mainstream media as there has been, but he frequently cites um, articles that come from the Washington mm-hmm. Post and New York Times mm-hmm. without irony um, yeah. and without comment. And so. Um, I think um, some of the solutions that Filippo and Giovanni can talk to us about in terms of a, a technological solution to figuring out how this stuff happens and what we can do about it are really important. Um, the other really important aspect of it is just news literacy. Um, and the fact that we're talking about it right now is, is a part of, uh, part of it that will help, I think. You're listening to Noon Edition on WFIU, and we want to hear your questions and comments for our guests as we talk about fake news. Give us a call at 812-855-0811 or toll-free at 877-285-9348. You can also tweet us at Noon Edition or join our live chat at wfiu.org slash Noon Edition. I think we're going to take a one to two minute break really quick. I think when we come back, we could really dig into the media literacy and what that means, um, not just in the landscape of fake news, but just the changing media culture. Um, So we'll take a break. I'm Claire McInerney here with Barbara Brozier. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, online at smithville.com, and IU School of Public Health Bloomington, online at publichealth.indiana.edu. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state each day. You can read news throughout the day as it's posted on our website at wfiunews.org. And you can pick up a digest of all the top stories. It's like a newspaper delivered to your inbox each weekday afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of not only the headlines, but also the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIUNews.org. Also, that's a good point. Yeah. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Claire McInerney, co-hosting today with Barbara Brozier, and we're talking about fake news in the changing media landscape online. Um, if you want to join our conversation, we invite you to call us at 812-855-0811 or toll-free at 877 
285-9348 or send us a tweet at Noon Edition. Before the break, we were kind of talking about media literacy. And during the break, we were talking a little bit about this. Not only is there so much fake news out there, but there's just so much news in general. I remember last year when I saw um, Spotlight, when that came out, there's this scene of them loading the trucks and the newspapers getting put on everyone in Boston's doorstep. And as someone who I kind of grew up with a newspaper in the home, <laughs> but like I thought that is such a novel thing that everyone in Boston read this one story on the same day because you don't see that anymore. Because mm-hmm. not only do we have newspapers and television and public radio, there's all these online sources that are legitimate, not fake, but there's just so much. And so I'd love to kind of dig into how we can be more media literate, not only during elections, but just the normal time when we're all trying to be informed. So, I mean, Susanna or Jerry, do you want to start with that one? Yeah, I can say a couple words about that. Um, fragmentate, media fragmentation is the, the issue in, in media and journalism studies um, for this century, and um, it will probably continue. But I think there's some stabilization in terms of um, audiences. There are still large audiences, mass audiences that are paying attention to um, individual news organizations. Um, so I think the important thing, uh, you know, Susanna and I teach in a media school, and we're and Susanna can definitely talk to you about teaching media literacy to journalism students, for instance, media students. But I think it has to go beyond that. I think the um, one of the studies I saw recently was talking about the inability of middle schoolers to identify the difference between a, a real news article and a sponsored news article. And so n- media literacy needs to be taught not just in media schools. It needs to be taught in uh, throughout universities and colleges. It needs to be taught at um, the lower levels of education. And so um, I, I think that's the way out. I don't think we're ever going to get rid of the fake news and the tendency of some people to fall for it. But we can start to minimize it by doing some of what Susanna's doing and spreading it in, into other areas of education. Yeah, I completely agree with Jerry. Um, so when we think about media, media literacy, we think about skills. So it's skill building. It's not something you have or don't have. It's something that you can develop over time. And um, when we talk about in the media school, we're thinking about the media environment at large, not just news, although that is certainly an important part of it. We live in a media-saturated environment. We're bombarded with advertisements all day, uh, media messages, branding messages, news messages, and so on. And a lot of the processing of that is actually unconscious. Our brain is filtering out most of it for us. So when we let our brain take over, sometimes that leaves us open to manipulation um, because we're not thinking critically about the messages our eyeballs and ears are receiving all the time. And of course we can't because it'd be overwhelming to do so, to sit down and think critically about every message that you see. Um, And I think with audience fragmentation in particular and the, the natural inclination of people to want to seek out messages that affirm their worldview, affirm their beliefs, means that in some ways, I feel like the horse has left the barn. Um, <laughs> at, at that point, it's too late. Um, and we all have this inclination. This is human nature. I've done the same thing to my Facebook feed that I'm sure many of right. you <laughs> have done these, this past couple of months. Um, we're all guilty of it. We all want to feel comfortable in our, our social spaces. So I would really like to hammer on Jerry's point that a lot of this comes well before adulthood. I'm, I'm more and more believing that primary and secondary education and critical thinking skills are the most important things that we can give youth, you know, mm-hmm. that in order to ensure that people can understand the world around us. Because the media saturation environment is not going away. The fake news is not going away. It's going to be more and more on the consumer to try to yeah. make sense of the world and be educated about the world 
And that's very difficult. It looks like we actually have a caller on the line who's been waiting a few minutes here, Dave from Bloomington, who has a question actually about ownership of media. Dave, go ahead. Yes, thank you. I appreciate the topic. I think that uh, from my point of view, media literacy is absolutely important for citizens. Um, but I wouldn't limit it just to, to the tabloid-esque type uh, that we're in, inundated. I would also include the mainstream media, which has been subject to a concentration of ownership. And I'll give you an example. During the lead up to the Iraq War, it was almost as though the media, all media, were mouthpieces of the State Department trumpeting uh, that the war was necessary. Uh, you, we, of course, are familiar with Judith Miller and her reputation in the New York Times using a shady source called Curveball to justify the war. And uh, one of the few voices against it, Phil Donahue, was actually canned for questioning it. So there we have an example of the mainstream media basically promoting fake stories in order to justify uh, a war in this case. So it's very, very important that we have media literacy. My question, though, is actually what sort of censorship is in the future? I'd like your guests to respond to that. I see that Mark Zuckerberg is actually talking about censorship now, not just pulling advertising. And if censorship is to occur, who does the censoring? Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you, you Dave. Question. Any of you want to jump in on that? Um, I guess I can. Uh, regarding the censorship, especially the part where I'm um, mentioning uh, Mark Zuckerberg, um, I think at this point Facebook is, is, is trying to figure um, the, the, the solution. They're, they're, they have um, definitely like uh, talented engineers and scientists. Um, I think it's not much about censorship, about, about curating, and I don't really want to use like a word that might have a double meaning here. Um, it, it's, it's, um, they're trying to keep it open to the input of people um, and let their community uh, flag uh, what should be downgraded in the, in the jargon or upgraded um, that they use. Um, that's that's an, however a very fine line. Uh, I agree, and uh, and um, and and of course, like Facebook and so on. In a certain sense, they, I, I both agree and disagree with them when they say they're not a, a media company. Um, they they definitely want to uh, work with like external media organizations to 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 provide a better and open solution to that. That is not just like a black box that decides uh, this is okay, this is not okay. Uh, because of course, like you would have censoring by human, but you would have censoring by an algorithm, and and that's even worse probably. I, I had a couple of thoughts. Uh, the first one is yes, of course, traditional media also get things wrong, but uh, everybody makes mistakes. Uh, I would say that the distinction between bona fide journalists and reporters um, and those that are just out to propagate fake news or to manipulate opinion is that the former. Um, can recognize mistakes, can make corrections, and so traditional media have, have ways to correct what they wrote before. But of course they make mistakes. And so I uh, sometimes people point to mistakes uh, which definitely happen by uh, either traditional media and they try to say to make it look like as if it was that was the same category as, as fake news. And I think that we have to be careful and make a huge distinction. Mm -hmm. uh, just like sometimes people mix opinions and news reporting. And they say, well, this is very biased, but maybe that's an opinion article and newspapers also publish opinions. And some people, it, it's, for some people, it's hard to distinguish between them. So I, wanna, I want people to be a little bit careful about um, thinking about different media sources and their professionalism. Um, 
on the issue of censorship, uh, I, I hear uh, uh, people who are making the same, uh, drawing the same conclusion or having the same suspicion as the caller about uh, the fact that Facebook may in practice do some, some, some kind of censorship because they are trying to uh, address the issue of, of fake news. I really don't believe this is true. Uh, I think it's, it, you have to consider that uh, a platform like Facebook is always uh, ranking the things that we see on our feed. The, uh, nobody has the time to see all of the things that are posted by all of the people that we know or all the sources that we follow. So some things are going to end up um, in front of our eyeballs and some things are not. If you want to think of that as censorship, uh, I don't think that's accurate, but if you do, then basically censorship is already happening. So the question is, um, can we make better censorship? Uh, but in, 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 in another way to think about it is that the platform has to somehow uh, try to make sure that you see the things that you're more interested in. And the question then is, should it also consider accuracy as one of the criteria, or should it only consider whether it's going to be engaging? So I couldn't uh, imagine that I could put in front, of a, in front of a liberal person a fake news that reinforces their liberal beliefs, and it would be engaging. But if Facebook has some reliable signals that say that this is coming from a source that routinely publishes fake news, and the same news has been around for, fa same fake news has been around for a week, and none of reputable sources have picked it up, or in fact it has already been fact-checked by a reputable fact-checking organization and have been found to be false, then wouldn't we want Facebook to use that information to perhaps give more relevance to another piece of uh, uh, information mm -hmm. and make it more likely that that other piece of information ends up in front of our eyeballs? Uh, so if you think about that way, I think that uh, technology could play a positive role, not absolutely a censorship role, but a positive role in, in helping people discriminate between information that is uh, reliable and information that is not reliable. And this does not, of course, removing things that are opinions that disagree and, mm -hmm. you know, generally platforms don't have a, a business interest in being politically biased. Um, but they do have an interest in uh, in getting people, keeping people engaged. So you said something. I think that kind of leads into our next caller. Um, this election was interesting. We saw a lot of like maybe someone. It wasn't fake news. It was real news. But they just saw a headline and then they reposted and they're like, "Look at this!" And everyone gets fired up. And did you read the article? You know. And, and so mm -hmm. we see a lot of that. And so we have Sarah from Bloomington on the line who wants to talk to you guys about just giving you some tips for the everyday people to kind of weed those things out. So Sarah, thanks for calling. Uh, yeah, you, you talk a lot, often very quickly, and I'm pretty literate, but I must say I, I haven't heard you give any specific help for people who just are looking at social media and the other things and would like to have some clues about how to recognize fake news. What clues can you give us? Not quite so fast as you've been talking, please. <laughs> you know, so okay. slowly answer. Thank you, Sarah. Yeah. Thank you, Sarah. I, I I really just come down to one one big one, which is consider the source. And so I know there are cautions for people that Susanna mentioned with regard to, you know, do you click the link or do you not? Obviously, clicking um, provides revenue for fake news and real news alike. But um, if you're going to look at a story uh, and consider the possibility of passing it along, I think it's incumbent upon you as a news consumer to click the link and look at the sources, look at the links within 
that news story, whether it's real or fake, uh, trace those threads, pull them all the way back to the origin if you can. Do they um, co- uh, you know, comprise evidence that uh, it comes from authoritative sources? Does a story about uh, the Obama administration's plans for immigration uh, trace back to the uh, Immigration and Customs Enforcement uh, page, for instance. So there, there are those things that just require a little bit of work on the part of consumers, sometimes maybe a lot of work. Not everyone's going to do it, but more of us need to start doing that. We have to trace things back to the source. Mm-hmm. I mean, for example, this list we have in front of us, if you are just on Facebook and you read this headline, Georgia proposes banning trans- transgender people from using public bathrooms, a topic that's been in the news. Someone might click on that, but it's from thenewsnerd.com. That's not the Washington Post. That's not New York Times. That's not your local newspaper. So that should be your first thing. Who are these people? Mm-hmm. You go to the About page or something like that. I mean, is that what you're suggesting? Oh, sure. Like, look yeah. at these names. Don't just read the headline. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And if you don't recognize it, do, do a little Google work. Search it on, uh, on search mm-hmm. engines. Um, mm-hmm. Go on the archives and see if they have uh, also older material or not mm-hmm. any stuff that's uh, not older than two weeks ago. And uh, um, also try to see um, again, search engines are really good because they're really good at finding exactly those mm-hmm. those keywords. So, uh, if if then you see that the same the same news has been shared by other um, other websites that you know already are questionable, probably uh, that's also a new one that's uh, publishing fake news. Yeah, um, and I know the caller. Sorry, uh, I know the caller wanted to you know <coughs> get her news from social media, mm-hmm. but I might humbly suggest trying other venues. <laughs> Um, and I think that part of our problem is that in trying to survive, legitimate news outlets have put up paywalls. Um, mm-hmm. So they're keeping out consumers who want real news, um, and those consumers might then be driven to a site that, guess what, doesn't have a paywall, and it's hard to tell if what you're looking at is, is legitimate news or not. Public media never has a paywall. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. I'll throw that out there. Um, yeah, what else? <coughs> So I think this this is all really good advice. So if you are if you are accessing news through your social media feed and you see something, then you can definitely do follow this advice. Uh, go to the source, uh, Google it. Very often, fake news, if it has been shown to you, it is likely that it has already been shown to a lot of other people, and in that case, it is probable that some reputable, reputable fact-checking site has already fact-checked it. Mm-hmm. So more often than not, just Googling, like mm-hmm. Giovanni was saying, will show you um, some fact-checking sites like factcheck.org or Snopes that will tell you that this particular news, like the one you mentioned, uh, is, is false. Uh, so that's one thing. But it is, of course, hard. It's extra work for people to do. So what I would, I would suggest, uh, sort of short of having to go and do the investigating fact-checking yourself is try to not put you in the position of being exposed to a lot of dubious information. And even if you, if you do like Facebook or Twitter or some social media, that's fine. But then you could pay attention to the source. You could uh, sort of uh, make a habit of only clicking on links from sources that you feel are reputable. Maybe NPR or your local a newspaper or some national newspaper that you trust, a news source that you trust. And so that will make you a little bit less vulnerable. And another point that I wanted to say is that one way in which we are vulnerable are these echo chambers. And um, (laughs) 
Susanna was mentioning it earlier, this issue of confirmation bias. If we see something that reinforces our pre-existing opinions, we're more likely to believe it. That is one way in which you're, we're vulnerable to fake news because they, they look true to us. So one way to uh, resist uh, putting ourselves in these in this very closed bubbles would be to also make a habit of following some sources that may not be uh, exactly aligned with our pre-existing beliefs. So from the algorithm standpoint, mm -hmm. if we know it's a reality, so let's talk about it. People are going to get on Facebook more often than they're going to spend 30 minutes going to homepages. In terms of the algorithm, if I spent 10 minutes and liked and followed 10 legitimate news sources and decided to trust those posts more than just what my friend is posting, mm -hmm. is that going to, from the algorithm point of view, give yes. me a better, okay. Those would be so that's a good tip. Mm -hmm. uh, another that's another thing I want to add that, like, it's my new favorite recipe is uh, many people now are are, are following, are discovering the unfollow option, at least on uh, <laughs> On Facebook, you'll probably see people saying, oh, if you agree with X, Y, then please unfriend me or I will unfollow <laughs> you. Um, and uh, that actually ends up um, perpetuating even more the echo chamber. And, and so like the, the new trick that I discovered that I'm very happy that I'm using and I want to share is uh, instead of unfollowing your friend, just uh, um, unfollow the actual source um, that they're sharing from. Um, that the example was a friend of mine who usually, usually posts uh, beautiful photography pictures. At a certain point, for some reason, decided to post, uh, to share stuff from um, one of these websites uh, at an impressive rate. And so I was really thinking, <laughs> well, I can unfollow him, but then I will lose uh, the, the, the beautiful photography. Um, and so when, when, you, when, you, when you click on Facebook and you... Um, it gives you the, the chance to hide a post. It will also ask you if you want to follow the person, but it will also ask you if you want to follow the source. So rather than following your friends, uh, uh, unfollow the, the, what they're sharing from. So you will still see the, the beautiful things they share uh, that are about anything else, about your friendship and so on. That's you know, a really good tip. Yeah. yeah, and there is, you know, one point we haven't touched on that I want to make sure we get to, and that's we've talked about people who are doing this, you know, to make money, but there has been some evidence that other governments are infiltrating Russia. In particular, we um, have had some evidence that Russia is trying to infiltrate this and seize on this opportunity mm -hmm. and use some sort of bots to get fake news out there. How much more of that do you think we're seeing? And what's the what's the danger there? Should people at home be really worried about this? Uh, okay, I'm happy to talk about this because some of the research that we do in our lab has to do with detection of social bots. And it turns out that social bots are a very effective weapon for those who want to manipulate uh, public opinion because you can create an army of accounts and make it look like these are real people. And um, they are hard to detect from real people very often, even for humans. So the, t the detection task is a huge uh, challenge. And so um, social bots we have seen are used routinely to promote uh, fake news uh, or to promote particular sources that often have an agenda, whether it is propaganda. Uh, uh, and uh, we've also seen examples reported in the news about people who are very capable of organizing armies of bots and they can have a real effect. For ex in, in other countries, we've seen this. We've seen it in Iran, we've seen it in Russia, we've seen it in Mexico. Mexico, for example, groups of people who were trying to communicate about some social <coughs> movement uh, were effectively censored by an army of bots that would just take over the conversation and flood 
Twitter uh, using the hashtags that were used by that were being used to communicate by the legitimate people. Using those hashtags, the bots would flood uh, Twitter with junk, so that people could basically no longer communicate about whatever they wanted to communicate. So bots is uh, bots are uh, sadly one uh, very effective tools, and so it is important to do research. Uh, one of our colleagues. Mm-hmm. Uh, at USC has used a tool that we've developed called Bot or Not that allows to automatically to use machine learning algorithm to get a, a score, a likelihood that an account is human or controlled by software. And then they've looked at uh, uh, content produced during the, in the run-up to the election, um, and they found that about 20% of the content was generated by accounts that were likely bots. Uh, so this is uh, incredible if you think about it. And so if you assume that every little bit of piece of information that goes in front of your eyeballs has a, some small chance to affect your opinions, that could be a very effective, cost-effective too, way to, to manipulate uh, uh, public opinions. We've seen it in the case of the anti-vaccination movement, for example. Uh, mm-hmm. We found that there are some accounts that are bots that are incredibly um, Influential. They have a lot of followers, and they, their tweets get retweeted a lot. And they are just uh, automatically programmed to spread fake news articles that claim, for example, that you know links uh, that have been debunked between vaccines and autism, for example. And there are a lot of concerned parents that are uh, genuinely, you know, worried about their children who may fall for this misinformation. And the results can be really, really serious. I mean, in this case, health. We've seen some outbreaks of of diseases that normally we wouldn't see because of vaccination. So yeah, social bots are a real concern, whether we're talking about foreign uh, states (laughs) or or even uh, uh, in our own country and in our own neighborhood, just people who are just trying to basically cheat and manipulate social uh, public opinions. You're listening to Noon Edition, and today we're talking about fake news. If you want to share uh, your opinion or ask a question, uh, give us a call at 812-855-0811 or toll-free at 877-285-9348. So I think um, one thing going forward, I think the election um, of 2016 was kind of this pivotal point for media consumption and things like that. Going forward, do you think because we're not in that that, sen- that mindset of every little thing we need to know, we need to share. I mean, do you think we're going to see it kind of calm down and this is the time where really maybe we can change habits on how we consume news? Or is that wishful thinking? You two are laughing at me at the journalism school. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Um, I think there might be a new awareness. Mm-hmm. I think that's probably the best we can hope for is that people are more aware. Um, but I don't see uh, our media landscape becoming less complex. I think it will become more so in the issue of bots, of course, foreign um, agents, and uh, our own internal uh, questions about good journalism versus bad journalism, What and even the question of factuality that is now under attack that we've observed in science for some time now that is now moving over into the journalism world. Explain what you mean by that. Uh, I'm speaking, speaking specifically of climate science, um, the way that climate science has been attacked for the last 30 years, um, and questioning the scientific method. And the scientific method basically says, we can know facts, right? Journalists say, we can know facts. Now that is under question as well. So I'm not sure what is next. I wish I had a more uh, uplifting <laughs> conclusion for you. I mean, there, there's there's no silver bullet here for this problem. I think the, the technological solutions that 
Philippa and Giovanni are talking about are are interesting. They're doing the work of angels. I love this idea of <laughs> the tool called bot or not. <laughs> it put me in mind of um, uh, my first uh, meeting that I attended as an undergraduate student when the provost uh, lectured us on uh, what we were about to embark on. And he said, um, your, our job here is to help you sort out what is rot from what is not. So I would say that the technological solutions are are very promising and they're going to be a part of what we use to defend against fake news in the future. But it still does come down to individuals uh, critically thinking about um, the sources that they're looking at. And um, I, I think the silver lining here is that there is a level, a new level of skepticism about these things that um, many people will adopt, uh, not all, but um, that will be our hope going forward, I think. So we only have a few minutes left, but in your dream world, how would you have, you know, and maybe for people listening who are like, I want to be informed, I don't want to get bogged down in how much is out there. Um, yeah. So one, uh, one great way is also to start um, following fact-checking organizations. Mm. Um, Do you have some that yeah, you could recommend some? to people? I think giving them a source that they could. Uh, Snobs be has been, Snobs.com has been um, uh, very famous. It started as um, urban legend uh, um, aggregator and tracker. Uh, now they're like usually the first go-to um, source where to where That's to check if S N O P E S. Yes, mm-hmm. um, there's a, there's other projects. Uh, um, there's a, there's really like what now we can call a, really a fact-checking movement uh, going mm-hmm. on worldwide. Really, um, other other famous ones are Politifact, um, factcheck.org, but really like. Um, Usually you can spot them because they're really like um, it's really like journalists that are they're like finding uh, also a new way to do journalism, not really producing new content, but really checking the content both from the mainstream media and from these uh, new uh, um, non-mainstream media, let's call them. Um, so, yeah, and most of the time these are non-profit organizations. So um, support them uh, if you like them, if you like what they do and so on. And it's also important to fact-check the fact-checking organizations. Well. The, the great thing about fact, the, the good fact-checking sites is that they're very transparent, so you can click those links and go back. And I just wanted to read it. I printed out this quote from Jack Schaefer, who's a media critic uh, writing for Politico now, I think, um, about this issue that I think is the most important thing here, which is to check everything out. He's, he goes back to this old journalist cliche, which says, if your mother says she loves you, check it out. Mm-hmm. And then he adds, First, find documentary evidence of her love, an expensive gift, perhaps. <laughs> Next, find a witness who can vouch for her love. After that, get a signed affidavit from your mother, but she could still be faking it. So really, the, the, <laughs> the issue here is awareness and, and checking, even the fact checkers. I would add subscribe to a mainstream news outlet to support <laughs> your local public yes. media. Mm-hmm. And I would add call mm-hmm. your newsrooms, your local newsrooms, exactly. too, um, if there are questions you have or you see something that is alarming on one of these fake news sites and you can't sort it out, Our call us here. Our contact information is incredibly yes. available to the public. <laughs> um, and we will help help people sort it out because mm-hmm. that's our job. Yeah. Well, thank you guys. We're out of time. Um, we want to thank again Giovanni Champaglia, who is with the IU Network Science Institute, Jerry, Lo- Jerry Linozga, who is the president of the Indiana Coalition for Open Government and a professor at the IU Media School, Susanna Evans-Comfort, also an assistant professor at the IU Media School, and Filippo Menzer, a professor of informatics at IU. I'm Claire McInerney. And I'm Barbara Brozier. Thanks for joining us.
Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from School of Public Health Bloomington. Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life. Publichealth.indiana.edu. And Smithville Fiber, the Gigacity Company. Fiber Internet, HD, and digital IPTV in Southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com.